When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Korean War episode 20. For the last two episodes, we've seen how Syngman Rhee and Kim Il-sung ascended to positions of prominence in their own spheres, with the Soviets implementing an unplanned, vaguely discerned end goal in North Korea, and the Americans doing the same in South Korea. There was no direct indication that all of this would not end as the Allies had declared it would. In other words, the Moscow Agreement in December 1945 
had put it that Korea was supposed to be unified after a period of trusteeship lasting four or five cooperative years, whereupon both sides of the 38th parallel would gather to reveal what they had learned and how such a united government was to be formed. Yet, as we know, this did not happen, and the reasons why it did not happen are, of course, connected. At around the same time, in the north and south of the country, both administrations began to lean towards particular figures as their ideal candidates to rule. This leaning occurred after some period of cooperation and cautious traversing of the native political issues present on both sides of the border. We saw last time how this moved the Soviets to support Chou Man Sik, since he was the most popular candidate and could lend their regime legitimacy, even though Chou was not a communist, nor was he particularly easy to control. Taking the rough with the smooth had been the unofficial plan for Korea then, and so long as no major reason emerged to solidify one's regime in their sphere, there was no reason why a temporary division could not be brought one day to an agreed end. By the time Stalin made his speech to the Bolshoi Theatre in Moscow though, in front of throngs of enthusiastic supporters in February 1946, the atmosphere had already changed. Similarly, when Churchill gave his famous Iron Curtain speech in March, the frosty reception he received from the public did not reflect the mood already prevalent in the US State Department. The Cold War was setting in, and even while America's foreign policy struggled to keep up with the weight of change across the world, they were faced with some harsh realities in Korea. As communism spread, and as the Soviet Union became more threatening and belligerent in its rhetoric, it seemed highly unlikely that Moscow would accede to the old agreement of unification along mutually acceptable lines. Indeed, by spring 1946, the Soviets were already letting Kim Il-sung run North Korea virtually as he saw fit. This would require a similarly strong response from the South, but it remained to be seen whether Washington knew or cared enough about Korea to develop such a response in time. Let's see what happened then in this last episode covering the background of the two Koreas while I take you to spring 1946. The song of the week this week, it's brought to you by a few things actually. First of all, you should know that my book on the Thirty Years' War, For God or the Devil, A History of the Thirty Years' War, is available now to pre-order, and you can pre-order it from my shop. But if you would like to get 20% off said book, all you have to do is subscribe to the newsletter. Ah, you see, they're all connected. It's a very smart strategy, and it will enable me to keep in contact with you over the harsh winter months. I don't know what that's supposed to mean, but it'll enable me to keep in contact with you and cut through all the crap on social media. If you're a fan of When Diplomacy Fails and you'd like to stay in touch with the kind of things we have to offer, but you find social media isn't really your thing and all that other stuff, then the newsletter is a great way to keep in contact with us and to keep up with what we have planned in the future and what we're doing right now. And if you would like to subscribe to that newsletter, all you have to do is click on the link in the podcast description below. If you do that, then shortly thereafter, you'll be able to access that code and you'll be able to pre-order that book. And everyone wins, including me, because I cannot wait to release that book to you guys. It's out in November, but you can pre-order it now and... Yeah, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be great. It's gonna be like five hundred pages long, though. So be wary. It's not just a short read you do on a nice Sunday afternoon. It's a big deal, and I'm very very excited about it. Okay, and the other thing that the song of the week is brought to you by 
is the History Podcasting Platform. Now, you'll remember I mentioned the History Podcasting Platform as a great way for history podcasters to kind of get themselves a leg up, so to speak. I said that I would be there to help people and that if you are interested in launching a history podcast, first thing you could do is contact me, but the second thing you could do is check out the resources that we have for you, and they're being updated every week with a new blog post. In line with this, a special thing happened fairly recently. I was contacted by a few different history podcasters. One in particular, Noah Tetzner, is a guy you should know because he does the history of the Vikings. And it's a brilliant show, but it's a fairly new one. So we said, hey Noah, why don't you put an introduction to your show on this show? And then people who are interested in the Vikings, because let's be honest, who isn't? They can find your show and they can... Listen to it, and yeah, again, everyone wins. So with that in mind, I'm just going to play this little clip. Hey guys, my name is Noah Tetzner, and I'm the host of a podcast called The History of Vikings. In my show, we uncover the secrets to the Vikings' massive successes and learn how their raiding tactics, craftsmanship, engineering, and mythology will forever leave a mark on world history. The History of Vikings is dedicated to all things Viking and rediscovering the lost stories of history's most legendary people. Aside from being the host of this podcast, I'm also a part of the History Podcasting Platform, a grassroots movement for history podcasts initiated by my good friend, Zach Twomley. If you host a podcast about history, then you should definitely check out the History Podcasting Platform. The song of the week this week is Goodbye Sweet Manhattan. It was released in 1910 by a Mr. Harry Talley. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back afterwards with episode 20 of The Korean War. In autumn 1945, General John Reed Hodge had quite the task ahead of him. As head of the American military occupation in South Korea from 1945 to 48, South Korea was to take the shape which Hodge largely allowed. Yet almost as soon as the Americans arrived in Seoul on the 9th of September 1945, problems emerged. The image of bemused American soldiers receiving jubilant thanks and hearing calls of Man C, or Long Live Korea, 
was effectively captured in Max Hastings' book on the Korean War. In the opening chapter, we're presented in that book with a peninsula scarred from decades of Japanese rule and oppression. Hopes were high among many Koreans that this would be a new start for their country, and that, now that they were free from Japanese influences, the Americans would free them and provide them with the tools to lead themselves independently at long last. Yet General Hodge did not have access either to Max Hastings' book or to the works of several other historians who all paint the same picture. What he did have was a stunningly inaccurate expectation of what was about to await him in Korea, and his soldiers on the ground were no better prepared. Although the 7th Infantry Division had been told to not treat Koreans in the same way that they would treat the Japanese, the soldiers that went to Korea knew next to nothing about the very real struggle which had gone on for the last few decades between these same groups, nor did they appreciate, for that matter, the sensitive issue that the Japanese occupation had inevitably become. If they had, then what followed would never have been allowed to occur by a sensible new authority presenting itself as the new start that the Korean people could get on with. Washington obviously wanted its occupation of Korea to go smoothly. It wanted to create a stable regime on the peninsula, and it hoped for the cooperation of the Korean people when it was trying to get this done. In his book, The Unfinished War, historian Bong Lee noted of Hodge's a bad first day on the job. We've all had bad first days on the job, but Hodge's really takes the cake. Bong Lee wrote that, General Hodge had granted the request of the Japanese Governor-General, Abe Nobuyuki, in Korea to retain his authority over Koreans in order to protect Japanese troops and civilians who had not yet retreated homeward. When dejected Koreans questioned why Hodge was permitting this, he remarked privately that Koreans were breeds of the same cat as the Japanese. Historians have said that Hodge was a brilliant battlefield commander, but a tactless man unsuited for delicate diplomacy. Hodge's claim to his new job in Korea was neither his knowledge of Korean nor his diplomatic skill, but that he happened to have been near Korea when Japan fell. This ignorance of the situation in Korea had a grave impact upon how the Americans were soon perceived. Koreans had not just twiddled their thumbs and waited for their American saviours to arrive. In the month before Americans arrived in Seoul, a native democratic and organisational revolution was underway. These took the form of what came to be called People's Committees, and they attempted to exert control over all levels of society, in the village, the town, the city and the province. Despite their name, they weren't made up of communist sympathisers. As we saw last time, communism was barely rooted in Korea, and instead these communities were established and populated by Korean people from different levels of society, who took it upon themselves to organise and group themselves into bodies which would be able to run the country until order was restored. One didn't have to be a communist to join. The only requirement, as the historian Peter Lowe discerned, was that one had to have no record of service or collaboration with the Japanese. Rather than define themselves ideologically, the most important thing to Koreans in the immediate post-war society was expelling the Japanese, making them pay for their crimes, and bringing some sovereignty to the new regimes. Thanks to the communications improvement under the Japanese, these committees were able to communicate with one another, and the population growth in the preceding years added to the availability of people for these fledgling bureaucracies. Although the members tended to be composed, in Peter Lowe's words, of the have-nots of Korean society, 
There were several genuine injustices that did deserve to be righted in 1945 Korea, and which, of course, the American administrators were definitely ignorant of. Unfortunately for the Koreans, their native activity and the initial positivity which went with it was viewed by the Americans as a communist movement. What was worse than this was that neither Hodge nor any of his peers agreed to meet with the representatives of any one of the committees. Korea, as the same breed of cat as the Japanese, was to be treated as the Japanese, like a defeated people but with less need for penalising their native population for what had been done. Having said that though, Hodge and his staff didn't behave as they did out of a sense of malice towards the Koreans, their guilt instead can be defined as a kind of ignorance. In addition, while the Soviets had no issue with simply eliminating their committee members or the problematic Koreans opposed to their military occupation regime, the American style of rule was less repressive. This in turn meant that differences of opinion and the bitterness over how the Americans had initially dealt with the Korean bodies when they landed manifested itself into new political challenges directed at Syngman Rhee in the future. Hodge's mission was to report to General MacArthur in Tokyo, and Washington remained largely removed from the decision-making process in South Korea, unless some grave incident occurred. Of course, the Truman administration was kept appraised of events, but these were Hodge's version of events, and were thus tinged by that general's intense anti-communist feeling. Hodge's deep conservatism in this regard compelled him to see any opposition to the American regime in South Korea as manifestations of a communist conspiracy. Since he saw it everywhere, it was only logical that he would see it in the country's problem areas. Blaming the communists enabled Hodge to justify rebuilding and unifying the political right wing of South Korea, a task which would be essential if any opposition to the communists was to take root. In addition, because communism was the ultimate nemesis, Hodge seems to have had no issue with appointing figures to the Korean administration or even to the police, who were familiar with the peninsula. Some men, such as the Korean-born missionary George Z. Williams, were sensible choices, but others, like the Korean former collaborators with the Japanese occupation, or some Japanese citizens of themselves who were upheld as more knowledgeable of Korean affairs than Koreans, were less sensible appointments. It was thus with much trepidation that Hodge greeted the most important committee in South Korea when his troops arrived in Seoul. The Committee for the Preparation of Korean Independence had been formed in August 45 by some of the South's most prominent Korean citizens from all walks of the political spectrum. One of Hodge's first acts when arriving in the capital, as we saw, was the snub of this committee, which had worked so hard to rally and restore order to the shattered post-war population in Korea. And to view with suspicion any of its members that did not subscribe to Hodge's narrow view of political acceptability. By the time Hodge realised the extent of the Koreans' outrage, it was too late to repair the damage. What was more, the appearance of several organisations on the peninsula, including the actual South Korean Communist Party on the 8th of September 1945, spooked Hodge's administration further. Paramilitary activity, directed mostly against the still-hated Japanese bureaucrats or the Korean collaborators, aggravated the situation. Hodge continued to chalk these revolts down to communist influences, and he could blame the Communist Party in South Korea for all that followed. When the decision was made to repatriate the Japanese and to remove the collaborators from office, their positions in the administration were taken up not by Koreans from diverse political outlooks, 
but just by Americans, ignorant of the Korean situation and devoid of any understanding of even the Korean language. It was a grim picture, and because the Americans lacked the repressive policies of their northern neighbour, it was becoming obvious by November 45 that the system just was not working. In desperation had Hodge reopened the former Japanese police school in Seoul, he estimated that he would need a police force of 45,000 men to restore order and stability to the fractured southern state, wherein 15 million people lived. Every day, more and more Koreans came across the 38th parallel, having perhaps sensed which way the wind was blowing in the north. Thanks to the availability of manpower in the country, Hodge was able to be fairly selective with his choice for new police cadets, and many Koreans were driven in their desperation to join up. The establishment of an English language school at the same time promised that the police would also gain a grasp of English in time. It was in response to the troubling situation that Hodge faced with the People's Committees, the latent turmoil which he didn't understand and the hostility directed at well-meaning bureaucrats, that the decision was made to bring back Syngman Rhee. Syngman Rhee was intended to be used, much like Kim Il-sung in the north, as a counterweight to the prevailing forces in the country. Like the Soviets intended in time for Kim to unify the communists behind him, Washington intended for Rhee to unite the right under his banner. As a well-educated, English-speaking, westernised Korean, to Hodge, Syngman Rhee must have seemed like a breath of fresh air, and he wholly supported him, but this enthusiasm didn't last. Upon Rhee's arrival in mid-October 1945, it became clear that the 70-year-old Syngman Rhee was not going to play ball. He called for the evacuation of all foreign forces from Korea and for the unification of the peninsula under a democratic government. This was hardly in line with the Allied agreements set down in Tehran, Yalta or the Potsdam conferences, and it quickly became apparent that the Americans had created something of a monster. In Seoul, during a meeting which took place in mid-November 1945, Koreans from both sides of the South's political spectrum called for the peninsula to be unified once more. Appeals were sent both to the Americans and up north to the Russians. Both Moscow and Washington began to slip ever so gradually into a state of mind which upheld that, perhaps, the idea of unification and a UN trusteeship had been, yeah, just a little bit naive. While these feelings were in their infancy, the Cold War began in the following spring, which only sharpened attitudes and removed any sense of goodwill which may have existed between the Soviets and Americans on the peninsula. <laughs> Hodge's well-meaning proposals to the Russians for a settlement, which would create a united Korea under Allied auspices, were rejected by Moscow out of hand. It was thus in an effort to make some progress on the Korean issue that the aforementioned Moscow meeting was arranged in mid-December 45, with a communique on that meeting's developments and decisions released on the 27th of that month. The recommendations of this communique were for a vague commitment of an open-ended trusteeship for Korea. The divisions of the peninsula would continue, and so would the joint occupation. If the North Koreans were outraged, they weren't permitted to show it, but in the South a latent dissatisfaction with this beleaguered regime was setting in. Hodge would have to do something soon before the whole of South Korea erupted into revolt. In January 1946, the Soviet and American administrations agreed to meet in Seoul to negotiate certain concessions. The American aim was to discuss unification, to keep the 38th parallel unfortified, and to keep trade between the two zones going at a steady pace. 
the Americans wanted to unify control of the railways going over the border and to arrange for cooperation on integrating the two zones based on mutual interest. But the Soviets would quickly limit the subject up for discussion and focused instead on what was the most pressing issue of concern to them, the need to import rice from the southern zone to their hungry but industrialised northern zone. The Americans said that the chronic shortage of foodstuffs in the south meant that they had no rice to spare. The Soviets took offence to this, and matters proceeded in this way for a few more weeks. Following tortured discussions and a great deal of wrangling over the minutiae of agreements, a communique was produced in April 1946, which did provide for democratic parties, the establishment of more committees, and some limited agreement. The delegations then went their separate ways, and they seemed committed, at least, to developing some kind of unified Korean government in the near future. So to cut a long story short, a few weeks after the delegations had left and had begun meeting in their sub-committees, the Soviets countered everything with an impossible demand. The Soviets demanded that any parties in the entirety of the peninsula that were originally opposed to the UN trusteeship idea had to be excluded from all proceedings going forward. Why was this important? Well, within Korean politics, Anyone that supported the trusteeship arrangement laid down in the Moscow Agreement of December 1945 was generally considered a leftist, while those that were opposed to it tended to be on the right of the political spectrum. Conveniently for the Soviets then, this meant that if the Americans had agreed to exclude people that were opposed to the UN trusteeship, the new Korean administration would be constituted almost solely of leftist and, of course, communist parties. The hardening of attitudes by Pyongyang seems to have coincided with the onset of the Cold War. Subsequent rulings by Washington, such as the Truman Doctrine in 47, Martial Aid in 48 and NATO in 49, all underlined the impossibilities in North-South cooperation, but the Americans were by no means responsible for this breakdown, or at least not wholly responsible. The Soviets proved perfectly cynical and grasping when it suited them, since they were, after all, in the process of building their own native government and infrastructure in the North, and they already had the man to lead it. In the first week of May 1946, as a kind of swan song to the idea of Soviet-American cooperation, General Hodge's counterpartment in Pyongyang, General Shtikov, wrote to Hodge to the effect that he had received orders to return to the North with his entire delegation and to break off talks with the Americans, saying, The main reason why the Soviet delegation insisted on barring certain persons from the consultation is that Russia is a close neighbour to Korea, and because of this, it is interested in establishing in Korea a provincial democratic government, which would be loyal to the Soviet Union. The Koreans who objected to the Moscow decision and raised their voice against the Soviet Union slandered the Soviet Union and smeared it with mud. If they seized power in the government, the government would not be loyal to Russia, and its officials would be instrumental in organising hostile action on the part of the Korean people against the Soviet Union. Such a statement put an exclamation point on the proceedings and effectively torpedoed any notions of cross-border talks continuing. Now the different zones of occupation were no longer only temporary measures designed to facilitate the more natural unified state of affairs, but they were strategically important bargaining chips that had to be held onto to prevent the further expansion of either side's influence in the Asian theatre. In such a haphazard, ad hoc way did the Korean peninsula become a political battlefield long before it became a military one, 
and in such a way did the Korean people pay for the rivalry which was soon to dominate world affairs. While one of the earliest such casualties in this brooding Cold War conflict, the Koreans were by no means destined to be the last. While the scales fell from Hodge's eyes, he was realistic enough to accept that it made no sense to dally and just expect the Soviets to come around. If the North was not to be part of the South, then the political problems of the South should at least be addressed. With this in mind, an interim legislative assembly was inaugurated in Seoul in December 1946 as a means of training the 45 elected and 45 nominated South Koreans that made it into this body. Hodge was undeniably fighting an uphill battle though, as the illiteracy rate in Korea had rapidly increased to as high as 45% in some areas, and a chronic lack of teachers, schools and teaching materials plagued any efforts to get the young and the idle Koreans back on track. After such a long culture of uninvestment in Korea by Japan, it was evident that the Americans would have to foot some serious bills if their zone was to get anywhere in the world. The worse off that the Koreans were, it was said, the more likely they were expected to be drawn to such dangerous northern ideals. Although it may sound obvious, Korea was not naturally suited to an artificial division to suit the conveniences of the Soviets and Americans. Let's just see exactly how unsuited Korea was to this division then. First of all, you should know that the two portions of the peninsula were mutually dependent, and had a history of polarised industries north and south. The north contained most of the hydroelectric systems, as well as heavy industry and materials and mining, while the south contained most of the agriculture and textile production facilities. The north also had better maintained railroads, compared to just 100 miles of still working rail lines in the south. A great deal of investment would be required to bridge the gap caused by division in this artificial state, and Hodge's activity in finally granting more powers to Koreans, untainted by association with the Japanese, seemed to indicate that he was at last learning how to rule. Koreans with minimal experiences were granted great responsibilities in running schools and in teaching a version of Korean history, which neatly dispensed with any outright mention or glorification of communism. The agenda was plainly to highlight the exploits of non-communist right-wing heroes, such as Sing Min Ri. By March 1947, Syngman Rhee was leading the charge in the rightist crusade, as he had been appointed chairman of the Korean Provisional Government. The Korean Provisional Government was a halfway home between a mere US military occupation zone and a South Korean state. Still though, the provisional nature of the government demonstrated that Hodge was not permitted to declare a Republic of Korea. Still, in spite of the tensions, negotiations were maintained with Moscow even as it was becoming increasingly apparent that Pyongyang was drifting further from the south. On the 8th of April 1947, a note was sent to Soviet Minister Molotov, reasoning that since the Soviet commander in the north had cut the border and prevented any transferal of people and goods between the two sides, any possibility that unification or political cooperation would occur were being cut off as well. In his wisdom, Molotov responded with the charge that South Korea was suppressing several opposition parties, a charge which must have seemed somewhat rich coming from a regime in the north, which had all but eliminated any opposition to Kim Il-sung by spring of 1947. Organisations like the All-Korea Labour Confederation and the All-Korea Peasant and Youth Union, Molotov said, were being prevented from partaking in southern democracy. 
Molotov knew full well why this was the case, of course. These organisations were just fronts for the northern communist parties, and received active support and money from Moscow. By this stage, Hodge and his staff seemed to have learned something from their Korean experience, and they were at least wise enough to recognise Moscow's hand in the south when it was present and when it was not. So Hodge's administration upped the ante and submitted the dilemma to the United Nations. In her book On the Korean War, Ruth Feldman noted how the UN's high-minded goals included a secret ballot across the whole of the Korean peninsula, and the election of a government, perhaps even a coalition, made up of Koreans from all walks of political life. While the United States was certainly wary about this prospect, reasoning that the better connected and organised communists and leftist parties may be better at mobilising opinion during any election than the disorganised right, the Soviets were wholly opposed to any such venture. In late 1947, Feldman noted, the Soviet Union sealed off the northern half of Korea and refused to let UN commissioners carry out elections there. So on the 10th of May 1948, Koreans held elections only in the south. They elected a national assembly, which established the Republic of Korea on the 15th of August 1948. Syngman Rhee became president. By this point, Soviet-American relations had deteriorated considerably on the peninsula, and the Soviet envoy to Seoul had been evicted, after the Soviets refused to allow the Americans to establish an embassy in Pyongyang. Apparently unable to see the hypocrisy present in this incident, the Soviets cried foul, but by this point there was more than enough fodder to nurture hostility across the wider world. The Truman Doctrine in spring 1947, followed by events in the Prague coup and the Berlin blockade from spring 1948, compelled a complete rethinking towards the Soviets in all areas of the world. As if underlining what had already become clear, in the autumn of 1948, the Soviets cemented their control over North Korea by establishing a new communist state. In Pyongyang on the 9th of September 1948, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea was established with Kim Il-sung as its leader. Where once there had been two occupation zones with a vague plan to reunify in the future, there now existed two ideologically opposed states. Korea had evidently been caught up in the mood of the post-war era, and any notion that mutually beneficial unification was possible crumbled just as surely as the Big Four agreements over the division of Korea, or the democratically elected government in Prague, or the security of Berlin, had also fallen to pieces. This was a new era of hostility, and Korea illustrated this change as clearly as the 38th parallel illustrated the clean break between North and South. In time, Korea would not merely illustrate the divide between Moscow and Washington, it would also cement it. After the uninspiring spectacle Kim Il-sung had presented when first shown off to the people of North Korea in mid-October 1945, the process of gobbling up political rivals and of installing Kim's peers in important offices began in earnest. The construction of an obedient regime led by Kim and dependent utterly on the Soviets was what General Shtikov had been instructed to create in Pyongyang, the expectation being, in the early phases at least, that the stronger his regime, the more likely it would be to overtake the South in the event of unification. With this in mind, sleeper cells were sent across the still open border, and preparations were made towards bringing the leftist organisations down South into line. In addition, what followed in the North was a total Russification of North Korea. 
as everything from its military to its intelligentsia was consumed in a Russian-taught, Soviet-directed bureaucracy. The early phases of collectivization were followed, as the hated landlords were evicted and any remnants of the Japanese order was eradicated. This process understandably appealed to the old Korean patriots, and was popular until it became clear that the new order was just as demanding and repressive. The peasant had merely swapped the landlord for the largest landowner of all, the North Korean government. Living standards fell as taxes were ruthlessly levied and materials were evacuated out of the country for use in the Soviet Union. As Soviet traditions go in state building, the North Korean example was as typical as that anywhere else in Eastern Europe, with the exception that recruitment for the native communist party in the north was a lot more difficult. It took some time for that party to build up enough of a reputation and a support base, largely extracted from fear and intimidation, once the initial positivity wore off. The army was probably the North's best asset by 1950, with 150,000 soldiers, no culture of corruption or wastage as seen in the South, and a well-supplied, well-equipped and motivated force, trained by Soviet senior officer corps, and supplied by veterans of the Chinese Civil War as well. As we've seen in earlier episodes, the intensive supply deliveries to the North over the spring of 1950 provided an incredible boost to the army's capabilities, but the benefits of Soviet-sponsored rule were also felt in society, as the kind of revolts troubling the southern Korean government under Ri from autumn 1948 rarely provided as severe a challenge to the authority of Pyongyang. In November 1948, the Communist Party was outlawed in South Korea, and by May 1949, the North Korean People's Army was testing its strength in cross-border skirmishes against its weaker southern counterpart. In late 1948, in the midst of the Berlin blockade, the UN set up a permanent commission on Korea, which would work towards unification. Unimpressed by the record of the North by this point, and no doubt perturbed by the belligerence of the Soviets in other spheres, the resolution was put forward which recognised Seoul as the only legitimate government for the whole of Korea. The USSR and its satellites, unsurprisingly, voted against this, and attempted to propose that Pyongyang should take this role instead, but they were resoundingly outvoted. The UN followed this up by extending formal recognition to the Republic of Korea, and on New Year's Day 1949, Washington announced that it would render the Republic every assistance in the efforts to gain unification. Syngman Rhee was delighted with the successive votes of confidence, while Kim Il-sung continued to find solace instead in the extensive military capabilities of his pariah state. The UN resolution in late 1948 had also called for the evacuation of the Korean Peninsula by the Soviet and American militaries, and this, surprisingly enough, was done. Sort of. Soldiers who had once formed the basis of an army remained in place, but in an advisory role. It was in this role that several military personnel in the South were moulded into the body that became known as the Korean Military Advisory Group, or KMAG. We've met KMAG before, and General Lynn Roberts, by this point likely full of an optimism that would eventually leave him before he stepped down in disgust in mid-June 1950, was appointed to lead KMAG, and it was to liaise with the American Embassy, represented by Ambassador John J. Mucho, at regular intervals. 
The groundwork for the situation we've been following for the last few episodes in the march towards war in the north and selective ignorance in the south was thus being set up here. But by this point in late 1948, Washington had no intentions of attributing much significance to Korea. A far more interest by this point was what was going down in China, as Chiang Kai-shek's beleaguered nationalists were by this stage suffering successive defeats. In defiance of the UN resolutions, and apparently alone against the world, Kim Il-sung's government sent out a memo of its own in mid-October 1949. Notifying the UN Secretary-General, the stirring cable declared, The government of the Korean People's Democratic Republic deems it necessary to declare that should the UN ignore in the future the will and strivings of the Korean people, considering only the selfish interest of a small group of traitors and betrayers of the Korean people, it will not abandon the struggle and will reserve for itself the right to continue by measures at its disposal the struggle for removal of the UN Commission on Korea and for the final unification of the country by its own forces into a united democratic state. The UN Commission ignored Kim's warning and continued on its merry way attempting to gauge the dangers posed by the North and the best means by which the peninsula could be unified. By this stage, Kim Il-sung had plainly given up on the premise of peaceful unification and he believed that only through force could his regime succeed to rule over the peninsula. If he could only persuade the distracted Soviets, then thoroughly occupied with the Chinese, as to the importance of his plans, then everything would be grand. Two weeks before Kim sent out that stern cable, Mao Zedong had declared the establishment of the People's Republic of China. Evidently, the situation in Asia was changing and more than ever, Kim Il-sung wanted to be a force for this change. As we have seen in past episodes, Kim Il-sung was destined to have his ambitions swept up in the wider strategic vision of Stalin, just as they provided Washington with a key to a stark new foreign policy. Now that we've laid the groundwork, I hope you'll join me next time as we ask the very reasonable question. Are my conclusions on the Korean War valid? We'll see what other historians say and whether my theories for why the Korean War broke out can be described as reasonable when so much of the historical literature on the Korean War takes a completely different perspective. If that sounds interesting to you guys, I hope you'll join me then. But until then, my name is Zach and you've been listening to the 20th episode of the Korean War. Thanks for listening and I'll be seeing you all soon. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.